Thanks for listening to the Archbridge Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Wilterdink, and today I'm joined by Victor Huang. Victor is the founder and CEO of Right to Start, a campaign fighting to rebuild the economy by making entrepreneurial opportunity available to all. And he's also the founder and CEO of Victor and Company, an economic growth consultancy. Previously, he was the vice president of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, where he led initiatives that impacted over 200,000 entrepreneurs. Victor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, well, I want to get right started, get right into it. Uh, the Right to Start campaign is something I mentioned. It's something that's how I kind of found you and came across your profile, and I really like what you guys are doing there. So I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of just give us the lay of the land. What is the Right to Start campaign? Um, what's what's the goal that you're hoping to accomplish, and uh, and why did you why did you start it? Why did you think that that was an important thing to be working on? Right to Start is a campaign to make entrepreneurial opportunity available for everybody, uh, regardless of who they are or where they're from, regardless of race, place, or background, because we believe it's a fundamental right, just like you have a right to speech, you have a right to worship, you have a right to assemble. You've got a right to start. You've got a right to be entrepreneurial. Uh, in fact, America was born as a startup nation with this idea that everybody should have the chance to be able to control their own uh, destiny. But we've kind of lost that. If you actually look at what's happened in America in the last few decades, uh, the data actually bears it out. The rate of entrepreneurship in this country has fallen. We're about half the rate of entrepreneurial activity in the country uh, that we were about from the 1970s. That's census data. That's like, you know, real, it's rigor as rigorous the data as you get. Uh, if you look at the share of the population, there's fewer and fewer people working in small businesses today, more and more people working in large corporations. Um, and so you can see the shift in the economy that's happened over time. Uh, and, and yet, at, at the same time in the last few years, we know how important entrepreneurship is. We know it's the source of almost all net job growth. That is, older businesses, they compete with each other and they cancel each other out and they either net zero or net negative in jobs over time. It's the young businesses that create the jobs. We also know it's the source of GDP, that it's the small firms that are the most innovative firms that actually drive the innovative products that become the growth of the economy. And we also know it's a way to fight inequality. We know it helps fight uh, poverty. And we know that more entrepreneurs actually raise income levels. The more entrepreneurs you have in a community, the higher incomes go. For every 1% increase in entrepreneurs in a community, that's a $400 increase on average uh, per household in a community. And so wow. we, there's this disconnect in America where we know how important entrepreneurship is. The country was born as a startup nation. In fact, the Boston Tea Party was an entrepreneur's rebellion of entrepreneurs saying, we want the right to be able to control our own economic livelihoods. Yet at the same time, we've neglected this issue. It's actually fallen away by the wayside. And we see the rates of entrepreneurial activity that have fallen and we see the net result of it in the economy. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is say, let's bring this back. Let's make this an issue again. This should be something that's in on, it should be a top issue in American life. It should be something that candidates talk about at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. We should have economic strategies on this. But if you look at uh, the way entrepreneurship is treated, it's kind of ignored. It's actually something where we, uh, we just assume or we take for granted that the entrepreneurs will find a way to take care of it on their own. But we've made it harder and harder for them to do that. And so Right to Start is really focused on how do we make it easier for entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs, to, to start and grow and succeed and what can we do as a society to protect and nurture that? Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I, I think, you know, as you, as you were describing, you know, entrepreneurs, new businesses, they create the bulk of the jobs, the new jobs that are coming out. And, you know, I think as, as we kind of all agree, I mean, a job is, is really important. You know, at, at Archbridge, we're really focused on 
you know, how can we uh, better help people climb the income ladder, particularly across generations? And uh, if you're not talking about jobs and employment in that picture, uh, you're just you're just you know you're missing the mark there. So I think I think that's that's super important. And the innovation stuff is is also really important. You know, driving higher living standards. You know, ensuring competition. Uh, obviously, that all helps the consumer. Um, so. You know, you mentioned the decline in new startups, the decline in new business formation. You know, uh, the decline in business dynamism is something that we've talked a little bit before uh, about on this on this program, and is certainly something that's discussed in policy circles. And so, you mentioned, you know, we've made it harder for entrepreneurs to get started and to really start that. So, do you think that this decline is is something that um, is a result of new barriers that have been put in in place? in front of entrepreneurs or is it, is it sort of a cultural, um, you know, a relic or is there, is there something else going on here, which is sort of the changing nature of markets in, in sort of an information economy where things tend to aggregate and conglomerate, you know, that's, that seems to be a trend in, in, in uh, the past couple of decades. So maybe it's some mix of it. So maybe I, I guess I'll, I'll try to narrow all that down to a question here for you, but what do you think are the key drivers of that decline in business dynamism? That's the trillion dollar question, I think. Uh, and <laughs> we've, uh, we've actually looked at that. When I was at Kaufman, we did research on this, and a lot of uh, folks have been studying this question. And the answer is it's multifaceted. There are many different factors driving it. Uh, and so you, you, you can kind of answer the question both in the micro and the macro. In the micro, it's you know 20% of people who think about starting a business don't do it because they don't have easy access to health care, for instance. Uh, a big chunk of them can't do it because of debt. A big chunk of them can't do it because of lack of access to childcare. A big chunk of them can't do it because they can't find capital. Uh, so there's a bunch of reasons, and you can sort of parse it all out. But then there's a macro reason because it sort of begs the question: Well, why? How has this happened? How is this accreted over time? And the answer, the macro answer, is we've just sort of ignored it. We've taken it for granted over time because we assumed. Well, America will do this. I mean, America's always been entrepreneurial. We, you know, it's in many times the things that you do the best are the things you take the, take for granted the most. And uh, one great analogy that people use is around pebbles in a stream. So, you know, if you throw a pebble in a stream, it doesn't do that much to a stream. But if you throw lots and lots of pebbles, eventually the stream gets dammed up. And what's happened is we've we've actually dammed up the stream of entrepreneurial energy in this country through lots of pebbles. And so every single thing, every uh, additional restriction on an entrepreneur, every barrier that's put in their way, every entrepreneur that um, is stuck in a system that isn't help making it easier for them becomes part of a problem. And that those pebbles have actually slowed it down. And so you can point to lots of things. I, you know, another example is community banking. So the small community banks have been almost decimated in the last few decades. And there are very few little banks that are starting right now. And so what's happened is the entrepreneurs uh, that normally would have you know, not been bankable by a large bank, but would have relied on a community bank that knew them and had some relationship with them. Right. They haven't been able to get the basic capital. And that's, that's not even like risk capital. That's basic banking capital that even entrepreneurs can't get access to now. And so you can look at across all these shifts in the economy. And then there's the macro shift uh, as well, just around shifting, as you were saying, to a knowledge economy from an asset-based industrial economy to a, a nimble knowledge-based economy means you've got to shift all the systems along with it. And we just haven't done that, frankly. We've, we've assumed that entrepreneurs would find a way, but uh, we're finding out they don't. It actually doesn't really work that easily, and we've got to pay attention to it or we're going to uh, harm our seed corn. 
Right. Yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, we'll, re- we'll return to maybe a few of those different pebbles and we'll take a little closer look at them. Uh, but I think that's a great analogy. Um, I want to kind of step back a little bit. Uh, in 2012, you and your co-author, Greg Horowitz, wrote a book called The Rainforest, The Secret to Building the Next Silicon Valley. Um, so in, in that book, you talk about the nature of innovative ecosystems and the rainforest is sort of the metaphor you settled on. Can you explain a little bit about what what you meant by that and sort of how the rainforest uh, applies in the in a business context? Sure. So uh, the way that uh, economic development has been done for decades, uh, not just in the U.S., but really across the world, was a focus on trying to build um, uh, you know big innovative corporations that could drive and lift up everybody else. And, and what we do uh, in, in the book, The Rainforest, is, is start to analogize that to the, plant, the planting of crops. So like on farms, uh, what you want to do if you want to build you know, great crops is you want to maximize the yield of farms. And so if you know the crop you want to grow, like corn, let's say, you want to maximize that through the right use of fertilizers, through the right use of planting techniques, through the right use of watering and irrigation, and all the different things you would use, use to maximize the growth of crops. But if you look at really innovative ecosystems, really innovative uh, economies, societies, communities, they're not so planned. They're not so predictable. They're more unpredictable systems like a rainforest would be, a natural rainforest versus a farm. And so if you think about on a farm, what happens when you have a, a weed that grows on a farm? Well, you kill it. You don't want weeds on farms. You know, If you have something other than corn on a corn uh, farm, you actually don't want that corn. You'll kill it. But if you think about rainforests, well, what's a weed in a rainforest? Everything's a weed. Everything is unpredictable. You never know if that new plant that's growing out is something that was expected or not. And you never know if it's going to grow up into the most important plant in the whole ecosystem. And so what you find in complex systems is that you have to nurture the growth of weeds. You have to allow things to spring up to give everything a chance for life because it, it could become really valuable. And, and you see that in places uh, that are highly innovative. And Silicon Valley historically has been like that, where even people that didn't look right, in the, you know, they, they were college dropouts, they smelled, they came from, they didn't come from the corporate sector and they wanted to start something. Uh, people would recognize that and say, you know what, this might be the next big thing. Let's give it a shot. And that was part of the culture that evolved out of the valley. Now, it wasn't perfect, of course. There are certain people that benefited from that far more than others. But on the whole, it's been very successful. You can see in terms of the output that's come out of it. And companies like you know, Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, et cetera, they weren't around you know, 20-some years ago. They were, they were not predictable crops that someone could have planted uh, from an economic development perspective. They were weeds that you had to nurture from the bottom up. That is, you can't plan this stuff from the top down. You've got to nurture organic growth. You've got to grow your own uh, homegrown crops uh, in a way that allows for serendipity and things to happen accidentally. And so that's a very different perspective. And what that means to grow rainforests is you can't plant lots of trees uh, and have a rainforest. You actually have to control the environment. So it's looking at the moisture, the humidity, the interaction of all the flora and fauna in the system. It's a 360 problem. It's an immersive problem where everything affects everything else. And so when you look at it that way, uh, supporting entrepreneurial development and innovation is really a problem where everything matters. So it's not just building one company at a time. You actually have to think about the capital systems, the labor systems, uh, the cultural systems, 
the networks, the infrastructure, the educational systems, all of it matters in the way that uh, entrepreneurship happens. Uh, and by and large, uh, we've seen this happen in lots of other places. So you know, people who've been in innovative environments know just how important culture is. And you know that the ways that people interact with each other and think and talk and you know, breathe and act have a huge effect on the whole system. And so that's one of the real lessons of Rainforest is to, to uh, systems that are really good at um, planting crops um, can grow one type of thing that's predictable, but systems that spawn like really sustainable innovation and grow in, in really uh, beautiful ways are highly unpredictable rainforests. And so when you think about building a rainforest, then you have to really approach economic development very differently. And that's what we've really tried to do. And I've been, uh, me and Greg and all, all my, a lot of colleagues have been on this journey. And over the last decade, uh, I think we've made some great progress in shifting the landscape around how economic development is done from a world that was more industrial based uh, to increasingly, increasingly, and it's a long battle still to go, but increasingly looking at uh, growing your own entrepreneurial innovation as part of that, that landscape. Yeah, I got to say, a lot of that is really music to my ears. Uh, you know, I've been I've been working on this a, a little bit less time, but still, you know, maybe about 10 years now coming up on. And, um, you know, I, I, I see all these economic development programs that are usually run out of governor's offices or usually run out of, um, you know, big, bigger municipalities, you know, they'll have a budget for that kind of stuff. And, and you know, you have this problem where uh, you have that pool of funds that then gets committed to different things or is used to like lure specific businesses, uh, in a, in a way that's much more planned, much more regimented, uh, rather than a focus on creating that ecosystem for that organic growth. Uh, and I, th I think sometimes those things tend to be a little mutually exclusive. And, and in my view, you sort of have a problem where, you know, some of the people who are in charge of that, you know, the policymakers, you know, they they can go to the ribbon cutting ceremony for, you know, for whatever business they brought in or whatever business they gave a break to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's very visible. It's highly visible. It's very seen, you know, and it's 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 sort of um, plays into their incentives versus the stuff that is a little less visible, you know, that just pops up if you if you kind of create those right conditions. And so I, I find that really interesting. It's very much. um is very much complementary to a lot of the stuff that I found and, and what we've been working on as well. So you mentioned that, you know, it was about uh, almost 10 years ago now that you wrote the book. Uh, I want to ask, you know, is there any looking back on that book and, and sort of like how you're thinking about it? Uh, is there anything that you have seen in the in the following 10 years since it came out that, you know, you thought, oh, well, you know, I didn't really predict that. Or maybe uh, I was I was too quick to think about this thing or 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 has most of what you've written about just been confirmed by the past 10 years or so? Is there anything you would revisit or or maybe revise or do differently? Hmm. Uh, well, uh, you know, even even uh, in the book itself, it talks about it as a first draft and kind of, a, a, you know, a, really a, a a high, very high level view of how to rethink economic development, economic growth. And so it's got lots of details that are missing in there. So there's a lot of things, uh, you know, I would never have predicted around specific technologies, certainly didn't predict a pandemic, certainly predict yeah. uh, the cultural movements that have happened, certainly didn't uh, predict a lot of things that have transpired in the last decade. Um, but I think... Um, by and large, the general vision is actually holding up because we're finding more and more people are gravitating towards this model, mostly because the old model 
just isn't working anymore. I remember uh, spending time with people from the World Bank even a decade ago where senior leaders of the World Bank were being told by the countries they were supposed to be helping to grow their economies, where the countries would say, you know what, we've done everything you've told us to do, these big macroeconomic shifts in our economy, and it's not working anymore. And it's because uh, the, the, there's, we're, we're out of bullets in the chamber. Uh, the ways we've done economic growth in the past uh, don't add up, uh, and there's just not enough big corporations that are already built to go around to lift, to create enough jobs for everybody anymore. In fact, they aren't, they're the ones that tend to shed jobs over time. So um, I think by and large, uh, I wouldn't change the, the basic premise, but there's a lot that, you know, was not filled in. And it's, a, it's really, the book was really meant to uh, provide a hot, very, very uh, new way of thinking about the problem, which I think is borne out. I guess if anything, uh, you know, I was very idealistic. I've been, I've always been an optimist and I, I, I thought it would happen faster. I thought people would, would basically, you know, see these ideas and think, oh, of course we better shift the system. But, you know, paradigm shifts are tough and uh, yeah. going through paradigm shifts now, you know, it was when college uh, many years ago when I read Thomas Kuhn and the nature of scientific revolutions. And I thought, well, how did, you know, maybe it's different now because the internet makes information move faster you know, maybe people will be more amenable to shifting the way they think faster. And I think the thing that's held up is Kuhn was right. It takes when you're present when you're presenting an entirely different worldview to people who've grown up in, you know, one way of thinking, shifting an entire way of thinking is so hard. And and I, I think uh, we have found that this is a multi-decade shift in the way that uh, society responds to uh, the innovation economy. And it's just an effort we all have to work at. And it's one where, you know, every generation will stand on the, gener the shoulders of the generation that came before to, to build the work. Uh, but I think if you look back now, I think I've become wiser in the sense to realize that's just the way human society is. You know, there's yeah. people that are always looking out ahead of the curve and they're the ones that have to pull the rest of them along. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, I think that's good. I think, you know, there was a lot of promise in, you know, the Internet and knowledge and connecting everyone. And I think, you know, we're all learning the lesson of whatever upsides there are, there are some downsides to that as well. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll have to, we'll have to kind of muddle our way through and, and just sort of deal with it. You know, it's weird to think just how new all of that still is. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, back before cell phones were ubiquitous and, you know, that was not really that long ago. Um, and, you know, and a cell phone really meant something really different, uh, you know, back, back even 10 years ago. Um, so we'll, I guess we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it keeps going. And, and, you know, I like, it's a double-edged sword. We have some of those innovations like Square, you know, people can, you know, accept payment via credit card, you know, anywhere. And like, that's, that's a huge help. And so there's just a lot, a lot to consider, but I think, uh, I think that by and large, I can't find much to disagree with, you know, in sort of the way you're thinking about that. I, def I definitely think your metaphor of the rainforest has been borne out. I'm hoping that you'll find even more, um, you know, sort of momentum as you as you talk to policymakers and as you're as you're trying to get some of these things across the finish line. So I do want to dive a little deeper and talk in uh, a little more specifically about some of the things that you mentioned. You know, one of the ones uh, that I see discussed frequently, especially more, uh, even most recently, uh, you know, as the time that we're recording this, the Biden administration executive order is, uh, is not, not too old. Um, so I would like to pick your brain a little bit about non-competes, non-compete agreements. So that's, that's one area that I've seen you highlight. Can, so can you explain sort of what non-competes are, maybe, maybe why they should be an area of concern and, and what you would do to sort of tackle that problem? 
So non-compete agreements are restrictions that employers put on employees to say that you can't leave this job and go work for another employer that competes against us, or you can't start your own business to compete against us. And what's happened over time is they've become actually uh, there have become a lot of them, and they become a real problem now. Now, at least over twenty, at least twenty percent of the workforce is under some kind of non-compete agreement, and. Uh, for a while, people used to think of them as something for like highly trained or executive talent. Uh, and these were people that you assumed could hire a lawyer and negotiate their employment contracts to the fullest because they had that kind of you know, knowledge and expertise and, and power to negotiate. But what's happened now is you have, uh, and this is the stories that get out around fast food workers, people making sandwiches being asked to sign non-competes or delivery workers being signed non-competes, which means they can't leave a fast food restaurant to go work for another one or delivery workers can't uh, work for another delivery company. And uh, so they become uh, a real problem because what, what it does is it holds people back. Uh, from starting their own businesses or working for another job. And we've seen the data that bears it out. So in, in Oregon, where they actually did an experiment where they actually eliminated non-competes, then they, people actually tracked it over time. They found that incomes went up. Uh, they found that mobility went up. People actually, it actually makes a difference in people's actual lives. And, uh, and there's a lot of people that uh, can't start businesses because of non-competes. And I've heard so many anecdotal stories around that. If you just ask around, people say, oh, I wish I could do that business, or I wish I could consult for that firm, or I wish I could do this stuff on the side, but I can't because my employer won't let me. Um, hmm. And so you think about all that potential that's held back in the American economy, it becomes a real issue uh, because those are lost. Those are things that people know best. They're areas of work where they actually have some inside knowledge uh, their area of specialization, and they can't actually leverage that to the fullest if they see a better way to do it. They have to stick within an older company uh, that maybe does it a way that isn't as value as optimized or as valuable for a society as a whole. Uh, and so it holds people back and it limits opportunity, not just for them, but uh, for all of us. And w one thing I do see is I think there's a real conflict around non-competes. People aren't even sure they know, they know how they're supposed to believe in it because it's actually a competition of two different forms of freedom. It's the freedom, on one hand, you have the freedom of contract, which is, well, people should be able to negotiate whatever they want. But on the other hand, you've got the freedom of mobility, which is people should be able to move around and create value in their lives and control their economic livelihoods. And those types of freedoms are in competition with each other. But I think what we're finding is one, the freedom of contract doesn't always hold up because a lot of people don't know what they're signing or they don't actually have any choices. They have to take a job because you know they have to feed their families or they have to make a living and they actually don't have a lot of other options in their particular situation. Uh, and a lot of times people don't even know what they're signing because uh, it's buried within a longer contract and it's just a term that's kind of thrown in there. Uh, and then people don't even understand the consequences of what they've signed. Um, so it doesn't necessarily fit that old model, but it's, we know it has a big effect on freedom of, of mobility. It actually he keeps people back and it keeps our society back. And so what's really interesting now is we're seeing the shift happen uh, and it's across party lines. We're, the president, of course, did this executive order around non-competes asking the FTC to ban them. Not totally clear how much power the FTC has to do this. There's probably going to be litigation that comes out of it, I would guess. But there's also been a wave of states in the last decade that have been passing uh, non-compete bans. Uh, and even uh, the American Enterprise Institute published a paper in December, last December around non-competes and how uh, banning non-competes could really uh, open up economic opportunity. Um, and so we're seeing people across different parties saying, you know, this is a problem. This is actually going to, this is actually holding us back. It's becoming 
a bigger issue than we realize. Um, we should do something about this. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this how this plays out at the federal level as well as the state and local level, because this is an issue that uh, it has a lot of lot, a lot of legs because it touches a lot of people's lives. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing more and more about this. You know, this is an issue that I, I hadn't even heard of until maybe three or four years ago, really. And it's and it's really picked up a lot of steam since then. Um, so I, I guess to play devil's advocate a little bit, I know some people, uh, the economist Brian Albrecht is, is who I've seen talk about this most recently. You know, he has an article called In Defense of Non-Competes. And uh, it's... He talks about how non-competes are a, a contract solution to what he calls the holdup problem, right? Where you have a company that invests a lot of training and time um, into a particular employee, and once that's completed, before the employee or you know the worker or whatever can can meaningfully contribute back to the business, then they can just kind of hold up the employer and hold up for more money or threaten to leave, um, you know. And what that does is it discourages investment in, in employees from, you know, from companies. Uh, and that's, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to create a legal scenario where companies feel that they can't invest in their employees and invest in new skill formations for them. Um, so, and, and this uh, non-competes are seen as sort of a contractual solution to that. Now, once we get a little further down, you know, into the crazy stuff like delivery drivers and, uh, you know, fast food workers and things like that, you know, they see, this seems like this makes no sense at all. Um, so is, it seems to me like there might be a balance between, you know, uh, you know, having a, a legitimate need for non-competes at, at certain levels, but how they've just run amok, uh, you know, uh, on different levels where they have no place being, you know, so do you, do you think there is a trade-off there? And do you think that, Blanket bans are are preferable uh, at this point in time. Hmm. I think there's a legitimate dis- policy debate on you know that that right balance and the you know the, the risks and the benefits and the costs analysis around that. Uh, no one's really been doing that, so it's good to hear that discussion. I think it'd be valuable to have it. I do see I do see a lot of big corporations investing a lot in training, recruiting people, building them up, and I think there is a, a difference between kind of uh, labor that requires a lot of heavy investment for training and which would be uh, almost like uh, the equivalent to what, you know, some companies do where they will pay for someone's uh, business school in exchange for working for a number of years to pay, pay off the cost of going to graduate school or something like that. That's not right. unheard of. I think you're right. The, the challenge has been the where it's just run amok and people have been uh, really told they can't, you know, compete at all. I think the, 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 the example people use the most often is California, where the state of California is actually the Supreme Court of California uh, said that uh, non-competes were unconstitutional, that they were a restriction on economic mobility. And, and so by saying that non-competes were um, not enforceable, uh, they were actually able to uh, help be part of the growth in, in California. And I think it's hard to deny that California has been very successful at building very big you know, uh, knowledge intensive, labor intensive businesses. Um, so I think there, but that analysis is worth going into, but I think I agree with you. I think there, there could be something that is narrowly tailored, but, uh, we need to have that discussion and we need to find a way to make sure that, it, uh, the, uh, the cost of doing so don't outweigh the benefits. And, um, and I think California provides an example. There's, a, and I, I think there's a lot of data that can show that, um, uh, you know, Banning non-competes tends to have a much bigger effect, but there may be specific cases where you could harm companies that, that do it. But uh, I haven't heard people actually engage in very narrowly tailored versions 
that are kind of in the lines you're talking about. There are a lot of laws at the state level that are based around either geographical restrictions or or certain types of talent or certain uh, income levels. Um, but I think the specific thing you're talking about is a really interesting uh, point to discuss. Yeah, I think you know we'll probably just have to kind of wait and see sort of how this shakes out. I'd love to see um, you know maybe a little further down the road an investigation in, in certain states or jurisdictions who have either banned non-complete non-competes entirely and then maybe other ones that have sort of curtailed them because yeah it's a tough one i mean i definitely there there's a huge problem when a mcdonald's worker can't go work for you know subway or something like that because of a non-compete agreement like that's just that's ridiculous on its face but it does seem like it's it would be a challenge to sort of legislate uh, how you might define sort of those different skill levels for when a non-compete uh, can be imposed versus when it can't be imposed. So I guess we'll have to see if there's some policy entrepreneurs that can kind of come out there and, and really walk that line in a way that, you know, uh, does this well. Um, so I'll keep, I'll keep you posted and hopefully you can keep me posted as well if you see any jurisdictions doing well on that. It, it's tricky. Um, some of the great work that's been uh, done on this is from the uh, Economic Innovation Group and yeah. John Lettieri's group. They've been keeping track of a lot. They have, they have great reports where they keep track of what's happening in different states every year. And I've been really impressed with that. Um, uh, but it, that's the trick is and you've seen this hodgepodge potpourri of different state attempts to try to you know thread this thing. Um, and I think uh, it's just tricky because it's hard to say there's one blanket description that captures exactly the policy uh, point you're making right now. I think it is hard to, to narrowly tailor this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, uh, another thing that you, you all have highlighted at Right to Start and uh, is, is a major concern, we touched on it a little bit before, is access to capital. Uh, and so, you know, you discussed a little bit about the um, sort of the dissolution of, you know, community banks. You know, a lot of these the community banks have just gone under. I, you know, the story as I see it has been, you know, we had the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and then as part of the reaction to that, you passed what I would consider to be fairly heavy handed uh, regula regulations uh, and mostly in the form of Dodd-Frank, uh, which really, uh, made the bigger banks uh, able to leverage their size uh, and their and their legal capacity um, to deal with those regulations in a way that smaller community banks just did not have the manpower to keep up with. They just you know they just can't keep up with it. And so uh, that that sort of you know rather than trying to um, become fully in compliance with with these new regulations. Uh, many of them thought it was just easier to sell, and, and a bunch of them were just snapped up by these bigger competitors. Uh, and so now we're kind of at the point where the bigger competitors are really the only game in town as far as, as, far as capital is concerned. And that puts the little guy at a really big disadvantage, you know, that it may not make sense for the bigger competitors at scale to be taking these smaller risks. They certainly don't have um, you know, the, the capacity and the manpower to investigate, uh, you know, these different ideas that are popping up in the community. Uh, and so it's a lot more regimented, which means that it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot harder for entrepreneurs to find the funds that they need. Right. And so do you, do you agree with sort of that analysis or do you think I'm getting a piece of that wrong and, and sort of, if so, where, so how, how do you view the change? I and mean, we had community banks before and we seem not to now, um, so what what what, can, what accounts for that change? I think what you're saying is a, is a definitely a big piece of it. I think the regulatory burden, and I've heard from a lot of people involved in 
running small banks around the cost of that regulatory burden. It's hard to run small banks. It's even harder to start brand new ones. And I know people starting new banks now. Uh, it's just tough, and there are a lot of rules on that. Uh, I also think it's part of a bigger story, though, and I think the bigger story is around the shift in the economy and how our financial system has not shifted along with it. And, the, and that includes both the private sector and the public sector and how it's shifting. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's not that dissimilar from the story I was talking about around economic development, it was shifting from an industrial era system to a knowledge-based system. Uh, for economic development, that's you know, moving from the farm to the rainforest. In capital, it's kind of a similar problem, which is our financial systems are kind of industrial era financial systems. If you look at the way banking is done, if you look at the way venture capital is done, as successful as both of those industries have been, their business models were basically built in the 70s or earlier. And they have not fundamentally changed that much since that time. The basic financial products and services they offer uh, are 50 years old. Um, and so what that means, if, if I think of the financial sector as kind of like for entrepreneurs, it's like walking to an ice cream store with two flavors, uh, banking and venture capital. And uh, if you look at the data, uh, banking, uh, venture capital serves less than 1% of new entrepreneurs. Uh, banking serves about 16% of entrepreneurs, which leaves over 83% of new businesses that actually are not served by either banking or venture capital. Mm. And what do they rely on? They rely on their credit cards, home equity lines, low, you know, money from friends and family. Um, they, they are not able to access the private financial markets. And what that points to is, you know, this, we, we think of ourselves as having a highly innovative economy. The question is, why can't 83% of entrepreneurs actually find any kind of private financial services in the normal fin in the financial markets as we think of that? And it's got something to do with a mix of private and public uh, barriers that have inhibited that. And a lot of it's from shifting to this new system. So, for instance, uh, if you think about the breakdown between banking and venture capital, they're kind of opposite ends of a spectrum. So uh, venture capital on one end is for very high growth businesses. Uh, businesses that are trying to hit, you know, billion dollar or more um, market opportunities, they need to hit, you know, when venture capitalists invest in businesses, they're looking for 10x the value build or 10x return to justify all the losses. And so it ends up being a very small sliver of companies where they're trying to build that kind of huge exponential growth. On the other hand, banking is highly regulated, highly conservative. Uh, it requires assets to be securitized as part of uh, a bank loan. And they look for multiple years of revenue records to be able to uh, provide uh, 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 bank services. Um, and so that tends to be old line businesses that have been around a long time doing asset heavy businesses. So if you think about the businesses that are really getting built today, the innovative ones, they don't have a lot of assets. They're nimble. They're brand new. They don't have a lot of financial records. They don't fit the banking model. Most of them aren't like exponential growth businesses. They're businesses that can be great and they could potentially employ tens or even hundreds of people, but they're not going to be a billion dollar you know, market cap business. Um, we don't actually care about them in the financial marketplace that much. And so the challenge then is how do we deal with that? And, uh, and so what that means is we either have to expand venture capital a lot, we have to expand banking a lot and change that, which is happening now and you're starting to see movement on there. Or we can invent a whole new innovative array of financial products and services for that 83%, which is where I think a lot of that, that shift's going to come from. It's much easier to invent new stuff than to shift like highly um, entrenched and regulated industries uh, like, like banking is and, and venture capital has uh, got its own 
um, models as well. But we're seeing, so we're seeing in that middle space things like alternative-based models, like revenue-based investing, profit-sharing models, um, uh, fintech models, um, and they're happening all over the place, and they're actually becoming more and more legitimized in the market. If you look up the terms revenue-based investing, revenue-based financed, uh, flexible venture capital, uh, you look at neobanks, the digital banks that are being built uh, kind of on fintech platforms, uh, you'll see just this wave of amazing activity that's happening. What we should be doing is loosening the barriers for those folks to be able to do this work better and faster and cheaper. And, uh, and I think that's the innovation that's going to be happening in the coming years is how do we allow the entrepreneurs that invest in entrepreneurs to be successful and to support that, that kind of financial innovation? No, that's, that's really exciting. And, and really, uh, I'm, I'm just happy to hear that because, you know, I think you're, you're dead on with sort of the bank model versus the venture capital model. And it's just really not, a, not a lot of new businesses are going to fit that super well. And, uh, and that's, it's really exciting to hear that there's a lot of things flooding that space. So I kind of want to, kind of want to dig into some of those details a little bit more about some of these new ones. Some of the stuff that I'm uh, excited about is when I see, um, sort of the innovations in sort of, you know, almost like crowdfunding uh, for, you know, investment, which I think is great. You know, like, why can't, if I have a neighborhood block and, you know, if there's some commercial activity or something, and, you know, somebody in here wants to start a small business or have a home-based business or something like that, you know, as neighbors, you know, we can come together and, you know, I'm hoping, you know, maybe there's some platform we can use to kind of come together and invest in that, you know, just even hyper-locally like that. And, and there is some... I know that the uh, the crowdsource funding and investment has has been gaining some ground recently as well. Uh, and then you mentioned, I mean, I've seen uh, you know in some of your materials and your field guides for policymakers, you have some some talking about the revenue based uh, revenue sharing models that you were talking about, profit sharing, uh, and then even some of these um, nonprofits nonprofits being able to get involved too and sort of sell you know those portfolios to more traditional banks, which. Maybe as a nonprofit, being able to uh, to kind of be the middleman there, they can they can get around some of the risk aversion of the bigger banks, you know, and, and let them have the time to grow, so that that becomes an attractive investment for these these larger banks that are incredibly risk averse. So, can you describe a little bit about how nonprofits are playing a role here, or how how they might be able to play a role, or sort of what you're seeing on the ground, and, and sort of maybe if there's any any place that you think or any even a specific venture that you think is doing doing this really well and really right you know i'd love to hear more thoughts on that sure um i kind of think of it as a like a plumbing problem so uh where uh the financial markets do well is where the pipes are really big so if you think about you know where the the public mains are where the water flows really big through the big pipes we have an amazing financial market system for moving huge amounts of capital through big fat pipes very well the problem is where the pipes get skinny, such as coming to your house or even inside of your house or to your faucet, where actually those pipes get very clogged up because uh, people don't pay as much attention to what's, where the pipes go inside your house. So we've got a plumbing issue where the smaller the pipe, the smaller the check size, the smaller the amount of money, it actually gets harder and harder because the, 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 the systems don't care about the small amounts of water, but we care about the big water mains. Um, and so what, what that does in effect is that actually makes it harder to get small checks to the little entrepreneurs who could become great entrepreneurs someday. But when they're starting out, moving check sizes of $5,000 to $50,000 is almost impossible uh, because 
Uh, banks actually lose money for uh, if, if for banks to do a hundred thousand dollar loan to a business uh, cost them a hundred thousand dollars over five years to do it. So that to do to move small amounts of money, small being sub hundred thousand dollars, is just something that. Uh, the most institu- uh, most of the financial system doesn't care about. So the reason that nonprofits and for-profits are really important is the nonprofits actually have, they care about the small pipes. And a lot of these, they don't make a lot of money. In fact, a lot of them are break-even or net zero. But that's what their focus is, getting the small pipes and the plumbing system down to the home, down to the faucet equivalent. Um, and what tends to be missing, though, is the intersection of the pipes. So uh, one of the really interesting models you mentioned um, around nonprofit investors. So there's a whole network of uh, nonprofit investors for microloans, sub 100K, called uh, community development financial institutions. These CDFIs do loans that are at small sizes, but they tend to lose money or at very best break even uh, on these loans because it's just expensive to run those and you lose a lot of money working with little entrepreneurs at high, in high risk businesses. Um, what there's a new fund out there called the Entrepreneur Backed Assets Fund, uh, which uh, I helped uh, a seed when uh, we were uh, I was at the Kauffman Foundation. And what they do is they actually buy up these nonprofit uh, microloan portfolios. They help upgrade the underwriting standards so the quality of the loans so that they are commercial bank standards. So a Chase or a, a J.P. Morgan or City City could actually buy those those microloans, and then. By upgrading the standards, they can now sell these pools of microloans to the large commercial institutions. And so they effectively connect the plumbing between the big water mains and the little faucets, uh, if you will, in the financial markets. And uh, the Gates Foundation just put a big a chunk of money into this entrepreneur-backed assets fund. Um, and uh, they're raising money right now, I believe. And if you think about it, it's not that different from like what Fannie Mae did for the mortgage market back in the 70s. I think they started in the 70s and 80s. Uh, by creating liquidity, by moving the money faster within the system, you're actually able to uh, get more money back into the entrepreneur's hands. So money recycles faster and you're able to legitimize it in the eyes of the public institutions, uh, the, uh, the large financial institutions, rather. Uh, this is a big problem because uh, and anyone that's actually tried to raise a fund knows if, if you're trying to raise a, a new venture capital fund, let's say, if you're raising something less than $100 million dollars, uh, Wall Street doesn't really care. Like they'll, they basically say it's not worth the transaction cost of p- helping invest in a hundred million dollar venture fund. Well, almost all the venture funds outside of California, New York, and Massachusetts are under a hundred million dollars, which means Wall Street doesn't care. They they might say they would invest in it if it reached a hundred million, but to get to a hundred million dollar fund, you need to start with a five million dollar fund or a twenty million dollar fund or a fifty million dollar fund, and so essentially it's getting smaller pools of money down where the risk appetite is different, where people are actually willing to break even uh, is actually how you start to open it up. And that's where the nonprofits can really play a role is where you have pools of money that are willing to break even connect to the pools of money that are trying to catch the upside that you can start to uh, uh, truly unlock what a lot of the potential is uh, between the small, smaller amounts of money and the larger amounts of money where they move, you know, they think in terms of billions and trillions, not in terms of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions. Uh, those orders of magnitude are really important because that's a lot of where the breakdown in the system happens. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super exciting. I mean, I'm I'm really really happy to hear that that kind of thing is happening. I I do wonder a bit if um, you know it might take a it might take a little bit of a shift in terms of a philanthropy mindset uh, to understand that 
investing in nonprofits that are designed to help connect the plumbing, as you're talking about, that's that's just as important of an economic development program as, you know, maybe cutting a check to an organization that's more direct services, you know, um, and that's, so I don't know, maybe, maybe that'll take a little while to, uh, to kind of shift and come around, but it sounds like some of the bigger, bigger philanthropy, um, you know, sources are getting involved and are, are very attuned to that, to that issue. So I just, I hope that that kind of mindset can kind of flood out to some of the, the more smaller dollar, uh, philanthropists out there who are looking to make a difference in their community and, and sort of, they can recognize that this is a really important way that they could make a big impact locally as well. It, it's happening. It's happening, but it's not easy. And I would say you're right. The traditional philanthropic mindset is invest into programs with direct services. It's like you were saying, they can do ribbon cuttings. You can see the direct impact. You can track metrics better. Uh, this kind of big financial change stuff is hard. And even within a lot of philanthropies, it's the really innovative risk takers within those philanthropies that are doing these types of things. Uh, but it's there's a lot there's a long ways to go for sure. Um, and you're right; it would be great to see more and more of the philanthropic dollars move into that space where they're really looking at uh, building the the financial plumbing system itself uh, rather than uh, just investing into direct services, which never ends. You know, you you, fin- right. you invest into one set of services this year, and you got to re up that for next year. And it's what you really what you want to do is just shift the plumbing system itself, not just throw water throw water into the into you know the house, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm yeah, I'm I'm excited about that shift. I think we're seeing a little bit of that as far as um, more international uh, sort of economic development stuff. Whereas you know it, the older model used to be you know let's just we'll flood these areas with you know free food or free clothing or things like that which really had a detrimental effect on some of the clothing entrepreneurs in that area or, you know, uh, some of the, the uh, entrepreneurs who are investing in restaurants and things like that locally, you know, they have competition now and they're trying to compete with free, uh, which is always difficult. Um, but now we're kind of seeing a shift towards these sort of micro loans, right, where you have the guy who's, you know, really great at, you know, some one thing or another, but, you know, he just needs a little bit of money so he can invest in the wagon or something like that. Or just, you know, some of the most basic capital investments can really make a huge deal on some of these developing economies. And so you're seeing those micro loans kind of go out there. And so and and it's it's exactly what you're talking about. It's it's about connecting sort of the capital flows. What you're doing, you're connecting these these people to financial markets. You're connecting them to markets. And that's and that's super important for for their own development and it's not in a very highly regimented way it's sort of letting whatever happen happens you know i think i'm excited by all these these developments i'm I'm happy to see that shift happening internationally and also now uh you know in the in the united states too it reminds me of what you're saying around this documentary poverty inc i don't know if you've ever seen this documentary but yeah love that documentary we have uh Several of the uh, contributors to that are on our, our board at the Archbridge Institute, and uh, so that's definitely been a, a focus of, of what we've been trying to work on as well as trying to maybe translate some of those lessons and see how they how they work in a more domestic context. But yeah, for any, I'll put a link to it in the in the notes for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's uh, it's definitely well worth your time. It is great, and because it talks about the dangers of free, instead of trying to fix the plumbing, you're just trying to shift, you know, trying to put a bunch of water into a household. Um, because you end up, it becomes not sustainable and actually causes harm to the whole system. Uh, but the one thing that came out of the documentary I thought was most interesting is the one thing that did work was helping the entrepreneurs. 
like actually helping people figure out how to make stuff, create a living, sell stuff uh, that sustains itself over time and actually is what the local people want. Like they don't want food. They want to empower the entrepreneurs who are already doing the stuff. Uh, And the more it, it makes me think a lot around like emergency response and instead of flooding the market uh, with lots of free stuff, uh, you know, could entrepreneurs be part of rapid response to crises and disasters? And um, we've seen in almost all markets where there is some kind of disaster, where there's a flood or a hurricane, it's usually entrepreneurs out front who lead the fixing of it, but they're usually not the ones who receive a lot of the philanthropic support out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, entrepreneurs, they're they're playing this this major role and you know anything we can do to sort of you know at the very least get out of their way um you know and and try to empower them and and get them closer to the markets that they need to be in um well i i think that's good i think you know one thing i wanted to shift gears probably the last uh sort of more uh policy specific thing i wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit on one of the things that we we work on here at the archbridge institute it's probably the least popular um, policy, you know, idea that we have, policy proposal we have, um, but we've argued uh, a lot against raising the minimum wage. Uh, and yeah, as I'm sure you're aware, obviously for smaller entrepreneurs, for new businesses, the minimum wage is is a lot harder to absorb than some of the bigger guys. Um, you know, most recently we've seen Amazon be part of the push for a federal $15 minimum wage, which of course, you know, they're they're a major player. They can they can afford that, uh, whereas a lot of their competitors are going to struggle to uh, to afford that that wage increase. And so we we kind of have adopted the stance that, you know, it, minimum wage hikes are probably not a good idea in terms of entrepreneurship. But if you're going to adopt them, try to keep it at the most local level rather than doing, you know, a statewide thing or, or you know, even worse, a, a federal thing. You know, obviously. Uh, markets are different in New York than in, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, and so I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, have you guys looked at that at all? Is that is that an area of concern that you've been engaged on at the federal level as, as well? Or is that something that's kind of in the background? We haven't uh, fully engaged on that at Right to Start just because, I mean, as you're saying, it's really contentious and there's so much nuance around it. Uh, but I agree with your point, which is, you know, what's considered a minimum or a livable wage in Los Angeles is very different from what it would be in a rural area or a small town or a mid-sized city even in trying to create a blanket number. There's no one number that fits across uh, the entire country. And that just becomes really problematic to say that there is one standard for what we consider you know, a, a basic livelihood. Um, I'd say the bigger issue we've tried to take on at Right to Start is this, uh, which is I think the debate between our economic debate tends to be between employers versus workers. And I think that's, that's, that's like a 20th century old industrial age fight. And we need to shift beyond the idea that it's companies versus workers to the idea that, you know, everybody can be a company. Um, everybody, you know, people are the new companies in the 21st century. Any one individual can, you know, they can be working a nine to five job, but on the, in the evenings or the weekends, they could be doing a side hustle launching a Kickstarter project, selling a service to their friends or their neighbors. And that side hustle or weekend project could become 
their big thing and it could take off and it could actually start becoming their full-time job and it could start eventually growing and hiring people. And I'm not just making that up. I've seen that story play out over and over and over again, that today's employee is tomorrow's entrepreneur that becomes tomorrow's company that becomes the worker that's uh, the, the, the employer that sustains livelihoods for dozens of people. And that's kind of the American story. We need to appreciate that the battle between a company versus a worker is just antiquated, that we need to move into an economy where everyone has the tools to create and build and make their own, their own futures. And that's a shift that I think is going to be tough because I think so much of our public discourse and our, our policy debate is in that old mindset that it's, oh, it's, it's them versus that, you know, and, and I think that debate is one of the reasons we've stayed out of the minimum wage debate is because I think that just gets us into that debate. And we just don't want to get into that debate because the future is different. The future is about empowering people, not about uh, picking winners and losers and carving up, carving up um, you know, economic outcomes. We want to uh, we're really focused on empowerment uh, and really trying to shape the discourse uh, for the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, that's encouraging. I mean, that's I think you're dead on right. I mean, every everyone out there has the opportunity. I mean, especially with technology, you know, I don't I can't tell you how many people, you know, do little they make crafts and sell them on Etsy or, you know, a lot of people, you know, get upset with Amazon. You know, there's some discussion uh, on the federal level about, you know, are they being monopolistic? You know, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, they're connecting, you know, very small entrepreneurs to a huge market, a market that they probably would not have access to on their own if, if not for, uh, you know, the Amazon platform and that kind of, and so, I mean, I love the idea of side hustles becoming, you know, main gigs and, and trying to, uh, trying to let people know that, you know, they are in control. They can, you know, each person, their own company, they can do that. And so I'm excited to hear that. So, well, kind of going back to some of the things that we touched on a little bit earlier in our discussion, you know, we talked a little bit about the Biden executive order in the context of non-competes, but more generally, how do you think the Biden administration has done so far in terms of um, looking at entrepreneurship or, you know, maybe you can keep it, I know their big executive order on competition, um, you know, where they were encouraging states to look at occupational licensing reform, which is something that's been a major topic of discussion uh, for us at Archbridge as well. So how how do you think the Biden administration has done so far and, and sort of what can you expect uh, going forward? What are you expecting going forward from them? Hmm. You know, it's so hard to say, uh, and we, you know, we're nonpartisan at Right to Start, so we really, you know, work across the party lines on this issue. I would say the really encouraging thing out of the Biden executive order was that they highlighted this issue of entrepreneurial decline as one of the main reasons to drive for this executive order. That's the first time that I can recall that any White House has talked about uh, the decline in entrepreneurship as a crisis in the country. And that's very exciting because it means that we've uh, this issue now is getting elevated as a as kind of a call across the country where uh, that means, you know, the uh, the the, the governments, the bureaucracy can start to rally. They, they kind of know that that's an issue that everybody needs to care about. Um, what we found and we've been doing work at right to start the state level in, you know, working with across party lines to build initiatives to drive policy reform uh, and advocate for better laws to help entrepreneurs is uh, the parties don't actually know what to how to just how to think about entrepreneurship like this is all greenfield like it's not like you can say non-competes and you immediately know what side you fall on it's not like you can say uh even regulatory relief and now there's you can see that as like a progressive issue in certain areas as well people are talking about this in ways that fall uh, outside of a lot of traditional party lines 
And so what I'm really hopeful is we can actually shift both parties in this direction, that this becomes an issue that transcends party, uh, because there's so little that the parties agree on these days that it'd be great to have an issue like this where people can actually have common cause. We just don't have common cause on a lot of stuff. And But this is one where the data shows how important entrepreneurship is. We know that there are parts of both parties that care about this issue deeply. We know it's a crisis level problem. So let's actually rally people around it and actually drive change. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how not just the president, but also governors and state houses across the country respond. What we found is they actually don't have rigid lines on how to vote on these issues. They don't have uh, a lot of pre-decided positions on these things, which is fantastic. Like we, we can actually reinvent you know, how people are supposed to think on this because they've never actually had to think about it before in this way. And so I'm, I'm excited about that, that prospect. And I hope people uh, across the country take the opportunity to rethink, you know, what do we vote on? What do we believe in? What change do we fight for off this lens? Because it's a brand new lens that uh, can matter a lot for us. Yeah. Yeah. I've been encouraged by a lot of that as well. I mean, you know, even working in the States, the state level is probably where we do most of our engagement and uh, that. You know, it doesn't it doesn't easily, you know, fall across party lines and things like that. You know, occupational licensing reform and having states look at that has always been a really bipartisan you know, thing. And most most state lawmakers, whether they're Republican or Democrat, are interested in solving these problems. Um, you know, of course, we have newer problems of it's more like incumbent businesses versus, you know, potential new competitors. But that that has really nothing to do with the partisan divide, um, which is which is both encouraging, but also presents some of the new challenges as well. Um, so you mentioned, you know, working with states and trying to get some of that. I know uh, some of the state level stuff that you've been working on is these right to start um, bills. So can you can you just briefly describe what that is and sort of what you're what you might encourage states to do in terms of entrepreneurship? Yeah, we, uh, we were very fortunate uh, in the last few months in the state of Missouri, we were able to get the first ever Right to Start Act passed through the Missouri House. Um, and it's the most comprehensive state legislation for entrepreneurs ever proposed. And what's really unique about it is it's not just one, you know, one little issue, which I call whack-a-mole. It's like, it it's actually covers a range of different pro-entrepreneur issues from non-competes to uh, lowering taxes uh, to creating an office of entrepreneurship, to dedicating 5% of government contracts to young businesses in the state of Missouri. Which, so that's a whole range of issues that could have a huge effect on entrepreneurs in the state. Um, and so we're gearing up for the Missouri Senate uh, in the next cycle, and uh, we're, we, we're excited because we've got that momentum uh, going. But we've actually heard from a lot of other states that have raised their hands and said, yes, we'd like to do something similar as well. And it actually is from both parties. And it just shows that this is kind of ripe. We're kind of at that moment where people are looking for a new new cause to believe in, a new set of uh, ideas to fight for. And, um, and so we're actually getting ready for the next legislative cycle. And we're starting to gear up for that and advocate for policies working with state legislators uh, in a bunch of other states now to start to explain these issues, educate them on them, and, and show that there are, there are ways to do this uh, better than uh, states have done them in the past. Yeah, that's, um, that's exciting. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. You know, congrats on uh, working with the Missouri legislature to get, get something at least rolling, you know, and, and hopefully that, uh, that all comes to fruition uh, in the next cycle here. Um, kind of staying on this topic, I do have, so this will, we can kind of close on this question here. Um, but if you had the opportunity to talk to every state lawmaker in the country, 
and you really only had about a minute or two to communicate your message to them. What is it about entrepreneurship or business dynamism or new business or or uh, innovative ecosystems? You know, what what is the key point or key points that you would you would want to communicate to them? America was born as a startup nation, but we're in crisis. We're in a startup slump. Entrepreneurship has been declining, and it's the source of jobs and income growth and fighting inequality that we have not paid attention to. And so there's actually an issue that can actually affect the voters in your district uh, and actually raise the quality of life in a very tangible, very practical, very direct way. And uh, there's a chance to actually lead on this thing and actually work across party lines to, to drive change. Uh, in a way that almost no other issue quite fits this. And so uh, it's a chance if, if policymakers want to be out front, they want to lead and want to deliver real value to their constituents, uh, there's, there are people that care about this and there's a real chance to do something innovative and impactful. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. So, Victor, thank you again for coming on and talking with me today and taking so much time out of your schedule to do this. Uh, we'll certainly keep... Keep looking and watching what you know. Right to Start does and, and what you guys do, and, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you on again to talk about all your success stories. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, really fantastic. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you and, uh, and really look forward to continuing to stay in touch and work on these issues together. Sounds good. Thanks a lot.